Uh, Father, we're grateful for um, this Lord's Day. We're thankful for the way that you dwell with us always, but you dwell with us in a special way um, on, on this day, on the day that you've set apart for your own. Father, we pray that um, as we prepare our hearts now for worship uh, by studying your word together, that you would be with us, that you would give us wisdom as we continue to contemplate your law. Um, the Ten Commandments, Father, you've given us, um, we pray that you would help us to not only understand your law better, but understand you better um, in your person. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. Um, we are continuing our Sunday School class looking at the Ten Commandments today. We um, Two weeks ago, the introduction to the law is a topic in the Scriptures, and this morning um, we will be, or last week we looked at the first commandment, um, the commandment where the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Um, we talked about the way in which that first commandment sets the foundation for all the others. It is God's um, total claim of his ownership of his people and their absolute loyalty to him, um, that they may not go after other gods. There shall be no other gods um, before uh, the Lord's face and his presence um, because they are his people. They belong to him. We talked about some of the implications of that, um, and, and that's a big part of what we're doing here is trying not only to look at sort of the very narrow um, interpretation or meaning of the Ten Commandments, of each commandment, but to, to really expansively understand um, what is this commandment setting the foundation for um, in the rest of God's law and in the way that it works out in application in our lives. And so we talked to that, about that at great length um, last week. Um, now today we move into the second commandment, the second commandment um, that is given by the Lord to Moses on the mountain of Sinai as Israel was established as a people. And here is that commandment. You can see it on the, um, on the sheet that you have in front of you. You can look it up in your Bibles if you want to see the context in Exodus 20. This is verses 4 through 6. This is what the Lord said. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so what do we learn from the second commandment? What do we learn from this commandment um, that the Lord gives us here. I've written four sort of summary statements. We'll unpack them slowly one by one, and then we'll look at um, some of the exposition of the second commandment that is found in our larger catechism. So I think the first thing that we learn from this second commandment is God's absolute hatred of religious um, idolatry, um, that the Lord hates idolatry, that he hates the worship of false idols. And and, uh, and even more than that, he hates us or hates it when we attempt to worship him uh, through idols, through graven images, through um, things that are carved and physical and made by us. Um, when we essentially turn the creation into our God, when we worship creation rather than the creator, which is, of course is what 
uh, Paul talks about in Romans uh, 1. This is, uh, I think, a, a similar kind of thing uh, that the second commandment really unpacks for us in detail. Now, this commandment means a lot of things, and we'll talk about many of those things, but at least what this commandment means is this. This is sort of the, the first obvious, um, narrow, central even, uh, meaning of the second commandment. That we may not bow down before or serve any carved image, anything that we make with our hands, anything that human beings create themselves, whether that image is of God himself, the true God. Uh, Of course, any image of the true God is not a, a true image, but any representation we might make of the true God or anything else that we might make um, that exists in heaven, on the earth, in the seas, right? The Lord is very expansive there, right? Um, and it's important to say that in this, in this scenario, it's not so much that our, our hearts don't really matter that much, so to speak. I mean, we're going to talk about some of the, the heart implications of this commandment as we go, but, but the first basic thing to take away from this commandment is the Lord does not permit us to bow down before or serve or worship any graven image. It just simply means that. It is not so much our heart that is the problem, but our body, in a sense, um, what we do with our bodies, bowing down and serving graven images. Um, The action itself is prohibited. I think an interesting way to to talk about this is what immediately happened, almost almost immediately happens um, in Exodus, Exodus 32, right? The story of the golden calf. That's a very interesting passage. It's, it's, a, it's an odd passage. It's a strange one if you read it closely. Um, and it's, it's interesting as you read it, it's, you know, it begins with the people are anxious because Moses has been up on the mountain so long. And they go to Aaron and they say, uh, make for us gods, right? We're afraid that Moses has, has left us. And it, it almost appears that they, remember at this time, the people are far away from the Lord. The Lord is up on the mountain Sinai. And there below, um, the tabernacle has not yet been um, invested with his glory cloud presence in their midst. And so it's almost as though they want a representation of this God that is up there on the mountain talking with Moses. And, and so, um, so the Lord, so I'm sorry, so Aaron, uh, of course, takes gold. And then it's very interesting, the same word is used, that he carves the gold that they give him. He melts it and he carves it and he makes this golden image of a calf. And it's, it's unclear, I think, specifically exegetically, is, is Aaron, you know, we have to sort of make a decision. Is Aaron making a, a different God so that they can bow down to this diff, different God? Or is he making a visible representation of, of Yahweh that will ease their anxiety about his hiddenness, his invisibleness um, to them at this time? I tend to think that it's the latter, that they're Moses, I mean, Aaron is doing exactly what the second commandment prohibits, which is making a carved image. And then the people, of course, bow down to it. They worship it as though it were God himself somehow. And when the Lord um, sends Moses down, um, he is very, of course, displeased and he judges the people uh, for that action. So I think, I think that is um, a great example of what the second commandment is talking about. It is at least talking about bowing down and worshiping uh, something that we make with our hands. Yes? Yeah, they, they, there's some, it's, right. They were thought they were worshiping the Lord in a way, yeah, in a sense, yeah. Although, you know, the, the 
second commandment had already been delivered at that point. But they, for whatever reason, the apostasy happened there and there, there, that disobedience took place. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, Mike. Back up there. That is a great question. Everybody hear that? Um, so Mike, Mike is asking, where do we cross that line? Um, I think that, that in terms of Christian worship, um, that, that I would say um, runs a danger of violating this second commandment. I think that, that clearly there's a distinction, and, and Protestants have generally made this distinction between a cross um, and a religious house of worship um, and a... Um, an image of Christ, for example, in a religious house of worship. And we'll talk more about are there situations where images of Christ are permissible um, outside of worship. But we've always, so, so the cross is not itself an image of God. Um, it is a reminder to us of um, the, the work of Christ, his death, his resurrection, um, those kinds of things. Um, but it is not in itself an object of worship, I would say. Now, I would say it's possible, I think, to violate the second commandment with a cross. Um, if you are bowing down before a cross in a way that, that somehow, in your mind, inspires a deeper spiritual life between you and God, um, if you are, you know, kissing a cross, um, I mean, this is a thing that happens, right, in certain religious traditions, and that thinking that that somehow fosters your your spiritual life or your devotion to God, um, I would say, personally, I think that is a violation of the second commandment, that that is actually one of the things that the Lord is prohibiting. Um, so does that help at all? Does that answer your question? Or are you... Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see what you're saying. It's like a visual image of a person kneeling yeah. before a cross. Yes, yes, yes. I'm with you now. Yes. I think, yeah, I think that at the very least is a very confusing image. Um, and one we should be careful about about <laughs> about promoting ourselves i think yes sir Yeah, certainly our cross at the at the front of our sanctuary is is an incidental part of our worship, not an essential part. Right? We could take the cross down next week, and nothing would change in terms of our our worship service or our devotional our devotion before God. And I think that's a good test. Like, is is this image just an incidental thing that's in that's present during worship, or is it something that has become essential to your worship, such that if it was removed, it would it would not allow you to worship in the same way. Um, so I think that's a good sort of way to make that kind of distinction. 
Did you have your hand up, Carrie? Go ahead. So, so a crucifix is different than a cross. It is different. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, that, and that's a huge distinction between Catholicism. It is. Yeah, and a crucifix is different than a cross because it is, it carries an image of the living or the dying Christ, the, but the physical body of Jesus. Yeah, so that would be the, and also of course, often crucifixes are, um, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but sometimes crucifixes are used as tools to religious devotion in ways that a cross necklace, for example, or something would not be. still has a body like man. And you see where the commandment prohibits both. It's both cases. Totally. Well, here's what I would say, John. I would say I personally do make a distinction. Um, I would say that, and I'm going to talk about that at more length, um, I have a difference with the standards on this point, um, that I believe that the second commandment does not absolutely prohibit artistic depictions of Jesus um, as a man because of what you're saying, because he was incarnate as a man, because he rose as a man, because he will ever, always, forever be a man. Um, and so I, I, that is, but, but clearly, the, the, as we'll see, the writers of the Westminster Standards disagreed with me. They, they thought any visible representation of any of the persons of the Trinity um, was a violation of this commandment. Um, I, th- I think it's, I think that's, the incarnation is a big, for me, is certainly a big part of why I would draw that distinction. But it's important to say it is a distinction that, um, you know, on, on that point, I'm at odds with, um, you know, not only the standards, but the early reformers. You know, Calvin didn't believe you could make images of Jesus, those kinds of things. So it, it is interesting. To, it's a question that we have to wrestle with. Did you have a hand up? And I'll give it to Kibbe. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Todd's pointing out a, 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 a question. What do we do about places in the Bible where men bow down before other men, right? Um, and what I would say there is that um, certainly there is a way in which you could bow down before another man that would be a violation of the second commandment. If you were treating him as, a, as God, as an object of your religious worship. But I do not think that... Um, simply bowing down before another man um, is a violation of this commandment because I would say um, we do not create men. God creates men and they are his image. Um, They are not graven images made by human hands, but they are actually images of God. And so there, there is, you know, I know as, as, you know, as Americans, you know, we, we kneel before no man, right? We don't, we don't do that. But certainly in other societies, more hierarchical societies, more um, societies with a monarchy, those kinds of things, I don't think it's an, a violation to kneel before the queen or the king or whatever um, if that is you know, what is permissible in your culture. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think that's a good distinction to make. And actually it becomes important in certain places exegetically, like in the story with Mordecai and Haman, I think you have to, in Esther you have to decide Mordecai um, acts as though his religion forbids him to kneel before Haman. And I would actually disagree with that. I don't think in that story in Esther that, that Mordecai, I think Mordecai makes a mistake by not um, 
bowing down before the man that the Lord had put over him in his, in his um, providence. And it sets off a whole chain of reactions. And I think Mordecai later repents and makes better decisions. But anyway, it's an interesting question. I think KB had a hand up and then Sarah, I think. Oh, certainly. That's part of, yeah, that context of that reform period was very important in the sense that, um, yeah, the, the idea of how do we relate to icons and images of God, especially of Jesus, um, was a huge issue because of Roman Catholicism and that context. And of course, many of those, I would say, abuses of the Second Commandment still exist today in Roman Catholicism, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, but it's not quite as heated an issue as it would have been in that that period in the 17th century that's certainly true sarah and then i'll come back to carrie yeah 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 yep that happens yes Right. Um, and then, so kind of the, the part of looking at it is what was said, but also um, I think if you're excluding images, if you think of images as good, mm-hmm. and then conversely, if you're looking to be, bring those images to mind, then you need to ask who spoke the word. Yeah. And we have images in our mind. Right. Kind of, um, I, I guess, would that, would that be a problem? Yes. That's a great question, and here's, here's what I would say, and Carrie, I'll get to you a second. Um, so this, if you look down at the bottom of the page, what are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? Here's what our larger catechism says, which is the you know, theological standards of our church. The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. So the only right way to worship God is the way in which God himself is prescribed. Tolerating a false religion, the making of any representation of God, of any, or I'm sorry, of all or of any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever all worshiping of it, or God in it, or by it. Um, so that, what's that? Yes. It is a very, it is a very complicated um, Yes, and, and this is why I have a difference with this portion of the standards. Now, I think we all often have to remember that the standards were written, you know, almost 400 years ago now. And so there has to be some, it's, it's in some ways almost impossible to say precisely, like fully exactly what they meant to prohibit. So, so I think it would be a great question to ask one of the writers of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Did you mean when you read the Gospels, you believe that you may not imagine a human figure healing the sick or walking on the water or, do you know what I mean, all the things that we read Jesus doing. 
I suspect that's not exactly what they mean, but it's it certainly by a sort of very straightforward, literal reading of the catechism question, that's what, that's what it says, right? You can't make any inward representation in your mind. Um, so I, I don't know how to parse that out exactly. Um, let, me, let me read to you my difference, and maybe this will be helpful. So on the back page, this is the, so within our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, we have the Westminster Standards, the Confession, the Larger Catechism, the Shorter Catechism. Uh, ministers are uh, required when they stand for ordination to state any differences they have with the standards. So you're supposed to read the standards in detail, compare it to your own convictions about what the scriptures teach, and say where you have any differences, where you believe the scriptures teach anything different than what the standards teach. So I have, um, I think, about five differences, um, and one of them is the is on this point, is on the second commandment. So this is what I submitted when I first got ordained and then when I transferred my ordination to North Texas Presbytery. I said, I believe that Scripture teaches in the second commandment, Exodus 20, for that it is forbidden to make idols or images to bow down and worship, but that not that it is forbidden to make any representation of God at all, either inwardly or outwardly. Though Christian tradition has generally found it impious to create images of God the Father, it is not generally thought the same with regard to Christ, the Son of God, or the Holy Spirit. More specifically, the scriptures themselves speak of the form of Jesus um, in Isaiah and John, and of course other places in the Gospels, and Revelation for that matter. Um, Revelation 1 gives a very detailed account of Jesus' um, appearance. And of the Holy Spirit in the form of a creature, right? And symbolized by a dove or... Uh, by uh, tongues of fire. Thus, I believe that the confession goes beyond the prohibitions of Scripture in this regard. And I would note this, I would, and this is helpful, hopefully, as you wrestle with this commandment in your own life. I do hold this difference fairly loosely. It is what I believe. I don't think, I think the standards err here. I think they go too far. But I continue to wrestle with it. I know, and part of that is because I know that I'm at odds with Calvin and with other early reformers who very clearly thought any representation of God was um, immoral, um, was sinful. Um, and that gives me pause. It gives me pause whenever I want to break with the broader reform tradition, historic tradition that I'm a part of. Um, I understand the logic of the writers of the standards. Their logic is um, that the Lord in the second commandment is making this really firm distinction between himself and other gods, that he um, cannot be grasped, he cannot be touched, he cannot be seen, he cannot be um, captured and made. And that's, you know, when you have an idol, when you have a graven image, who really is master over it? Um, is it? Is it you or is it the idol? I think you can you can make the case, well, it's you, right? You control the idol, you make, you, you make it look however it, you want it to. Um, you know, it creates this sort of different relationship spiritually. And I certainly think there are grave dangers of, with making images, even of Jesus, even in his incarnation. I think we have to be very careful about how we make images, even of Jesus, though I do think we're permitted to do so. Um, I think generally our modern Christian culture is not careful enough about this. I think about this in a number of ways. Like, there are cartoon images of Jesus, right? I don't think that's a great idea. I don't, I mean, I'm not going to go out and say that's like inherently sinful, like that's a, but I just think, oh, you know, like, 
It just seems to me to be, to be what's that? Yeah, irreverent in a certain kind. Yeah, that, that it, it can create this sort of, like, yes, Jesus is a man like us, but he's also a divine person, right? And so you have, I mean, it, it just seems like you, if you're going to depict that artistically, there are sorts of ways you have to be careful uh, with that. In my own practices, this is what I do personally, I do possess two-dimensional artistic drawings or paintings of Jesus, right? That's something I, I have. I have some in my office. Um, and so that is something, that is a place where I think the Westminster standards are not exactly correct, and I am at odds with them, even not only my opinion, but also my practice. Um, but I don't have realistic depictions of Jesus, and for me, this does make a difference. Um, certainly, when I imagine Jesus, I imagine a human man, but I would prefer for that imagining that I have of him to be defined by what I read in the scriptures, by the inspired word of God um, as much as possible, not some other person's imagination of what he looked like or how he held himself or what he, um, yeah, any of that. Um, and I think that there is a danger when we try to make, and I think you guys understand the distinction I'm making that there are, there are artistic depictions of Jesus that are not intended to be realistic, so to speak. They're more um, uh, Right. Yes, there's certainly a pedagogical purpose, although I would say that it pretty quickly became, in the history of the church, very debated about people using it as a means to worship, um, as an aid for worship. Um, and of course, this was a huge debate in, in the first centuries of the church about icons and 
um, their role in Christian devotion, Christian worship. Um, so here's, here's I want to get to y'all's questions, but let me just explain my view basically. I, I, so I do make a distinction in my own mind at least and practice between, um, you know, like someone who dresses up like Jesus and you take a photograph of him and somehow that, like I think that kind of thing, we have, I think we should be careful about. Um, and, and I also personally, because I want my imagination not to be shaped by other men's imaginations but by the scriptures, I don't watch movies that have Jesus in them, quote unquote Jesus in them. Um, I don't watch TV, you know, I don't watch moving depictions. I've never seen The Passion of the Christ. Um, I've, I, you know, as a child, I think probably my parents showed me some Jesus movies, but I've never watched a Jesus movie as an adult. Um, and that is something like I would, and I, I'm not saying that I'm, you know, I've never preached on that or whatever, you know, like I'm not making that a big deal for y'all. I just think it's something to think about. Like, what does it do for you when you come to the gospel texts, uh, when, you, when you interact with the scriptures, if you have, you know, a, 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 this strong, purportedly realistic uh, visual of who Jesus is and what his personality was like and, and what he did? Um, and I just think that's something that we should really be careful about and wrestle with because I think that it is right for us we want our imaginations to be shaped by um, what the Spirit has given us inerrantly um, in the Scriptures and not by other, other things. So it's just something to think about and wrestle with in your own application of this commandment. Um, all of us have to make decisions you know, before God about how we um, obey His law. And, and this, it's important to say this is a debated topic. This is a debated thing within the Reformed tradition, and within the broad Christian tradition in general, right? Of course, there are some Christian traditions who, um, not you know, not only Roman Catholics, who I think there are abuses within um, their practices, but but other traditions have a much more loose um, approach to making representations of Jesus. But it is important to say, like, there are men in the PC, there are Presbyterian churches where you have a pastor say, any depiction of Jesus is wrong. And you should, you know, and, and it'll be a big deal for them. And I get, I get the logic. I get the, I don't fully agree personally, but I get the, under, I understand the perspective. And I understand the, there is, we should, we should tread carefully here, I think, when we think about the way that we depict God in Christ. Yes. Yeah, right. It wasn't a problem. Right. Take Emma, for instance, and you insert the book. Yes. And then there's like 20 versions. Right. Right. Yeah. And they vary widely. Right. Yeah. Right. No, that's, that's a great point. And that's part of why, I mean, this is kind of a, a silly example, but in my household, we don't watch the Lord of the Rings movies. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of you love the Lord of the Rings movies. And when our children get old enough, they'll make decisions about whether they want to watch Lord of the Rings movies. But those for us, those texts are so important and like um, meaningful that I I don't want my kids to encounter them in a way that is shaped by the imagination of Peter Jackson, um, and I don't necessarily even dislike the movies. Like I think they're fine. I you know, um, but I just I want to say like I know like if they watch the movie, they'll never hear me read the book to them the same way. Like it'll just it'll shape them. 
And I think that's sort of what KB is saying, that there's this inherent interpre- interpretive act that happens um, in, in cinema in a way that's even, I think, deeper than other mediums because of the, the way that it functions. I saw, yeah, Carrie and then James. Yes, right. That's right. <laughs> Can I go back to worshiping men? Yes. Because, um, um, the, I mean, in my understanding of early church history, the fact that the uh, they wouldn't bow down to Caesar and they wouldn't burn incense, I mean, that they perished, but they, they yes, were, yes, they were killed. <coughs> Yeah, that's a great point. Historically, in the first century, yeah, that was certainly something they would not venerate images of Caesar. They would not, um, you know, venerate him in person if that was required. Usually it was the image, right, that you're supposed to bow down before this image. What I would say is that that those acts were all in, inherently acts of worship, and they understood them to be, that Caesar, Caesar's power was not only political, it was also religious and spiritual. And so, yeah, I, and I think, you know, you see... Well, I think any kneeling before an image of Caesar or of any man in a way that is, yeah, that is, that is venerating it, that is acting as though this is somehow an act of worship spiritually or religiously would be, uh, would be wrong, you know. Um, yeah, the story with Nebuchadnezzar is a great example of that, right, where, where Nebuchadnezzar makes this image of himself um, and he wants people to bow down to it. And, of course, they refuse the... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do it. But don't you think the, 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 European, the current European royalty understands they're not saying that I'm God? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I, would, I would make that distinction. Okay. Yeah. Now, it may be that some people can sin in their hearts when they, sure. when they venerate an image of a monarch or something. But yeah, I don't think contemporary modern royalty would... I, I wouldn't say that a, an English, a British person who kneels before Queen Elizabeth is inherently violating the second commandment. Um, we're sinning. What would the difference be? Um, that she, you, you kneel as an act of political submission and homage, um, which in my mind is different from, um, yeah, is different from religious worship. And, and I think, you know, there are ways that we, obviously we don't treat our presidents the same way, but there are attitudes of respect that people would typically do in the presence of someone like that, you know, um, you know, soldiers salute in front of their commanding general, those kinds of things. Um, and I think those things are appropriate. Jacob would do they, they would yeah. Yeah. J- yeah. And you, you and it, Todd's pointing out in Genesis, if you read this, there's a lot of kneeling before people. Um, and he's talking about the story of Jacob and Esau, you know, when Jacob's going back from his exile and he wants Esau to forgive him. Um, he, he's very deferential, right? He, he does all these things and he finally kneels before him and says, you know, forgive me, basically. Don't, don't kill me. Um, and there's no indication in the text that that is somehow inherently sinful of him to do um, because it's not an act of worship. It's an act of... And it's not a graven image. It's not a graven image. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's not a graven image. It's not a created image. Yeah, um, or created by man, at least. Yes, and yes, go ahead. Eric.
mm-hmm. with my body I thee worship. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. Yeah, these words these words were not as inherently religious as they are today. That's true. It's a fair point. Is Sassy hand up, James? Maybe. Okay. Do you want to get it in real fast? I'm curious about how, <laughs> I mean, a lot of this discussion seems to be about how do we contextualize the application of this yes. passage. So I read this and just like at face value taking this out of context, to me, it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. Yeah, great point. Yeah. Yeah. Like we shouldn't make any image of any or any likeness of anything. Of anything. No, that's yeah. a great point. Yes. Yeah. So, so so I'm wondering how much the historical context of this passage should inform our reading of it. Yep. And then conversely how our current context should inform our application. It's a great question. So you all see what James is pointing out in the text itself. Um, verse 4, if you read it very straightforwardly, basically says, don't make images of anything at all, right? And, and here's why I don't think that means that. Because almost immediately after this text, the Lord describes in great detail how Moses must build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is supposed to have images of trees and fruit and created things, things that are on the earth. Um, it's supposed to look like a garden. And he, like very... He, very much detail he spells it out and so yeah there and this is part of why I don't follow the 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 reformer or the the writers of the standards in their very sort of I think narrow application of this to God I don't think this is necessarily you may not ever make a representation of of anything um, it, it is about making representations of things in order to worship use them as means for worship um, and I think certainly it is a prohibition of that. And I think, and like I said, we, I think we have to be very careful. Like we don't want to, this is something that the Lord takes very seriously. You see that in the warning that he gives, um, that he visits the iniquity of fathers upon their children, that kind of thing. And you see this demonstrated, I think, I think this, this commandment certainly should, we should generally, modern Christians um, in the West at least, should take worship much more seriously, I think, than we do. Right, I love this quote by Annie Dillard. This is a second point I had on the first page. Um, she writes, I often think of the set pieces of the liturgy as certain words which people have successfully addressed to God without their getting killed. Like, I, I love that. Like, because it's sort of like the good reason for written liturgy is people have said these words before you and God didn't strike them down, Right. And that, and there, there should be some of that, like, like I'm not saying we should be afraid to worship God in some like, like, absolute terror kind of way, but we should be a little afraid, I think. Um, there is such a thing as reverence and 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 taking care in the presence of God that I think in some ways we've lost as modern people, partly because we've lost it in every other aspect of our life, pretty much. Um, and so I, I, just, I just think that, I think it's something for us to wrestle with. I think certainly the second commandment speaks of that. Um, you know, a great application of this in the scriptures is Leviticus 10, 
where the sons of Aaron, who's the high priest, go into the presence of God. And we don't even fully understand what they did. They offered strange fire is what we're told. And people debate, what is this strange fire? Did they? I don't, and I don't think we know exactly. But the Lord immediately struck out and struck them dead, like they were dead. And it's all, the story's told in three verses. You can read it. And it's fascinating just how like, everyone's like, yep, that makes sense, right? Like Aaron, you know, doesn't, I mean, there's no like big fallout from it. It just is like they went into God's presence and they did the wrong thing and God killed them. And, um, and I, think, I think that we, you know, I, think, I, I just think that's something we should wrestle with as modern Christians. Um, is it possible that at times we're too casual in our approach to God? And I think that certainly this, this commandment helps us recenter that um, as we think about our, our relationship with the Father. Okay, um, one last question, then we're going to wrap up. Short question. Yep. Angels in the ark, yeah, the, the seraphim, the cherubim. Yep. Go ahead. So the specifics were not um the things were not there which didn't have a lot of like what we might think culturally appropriate in, in like that specific time. There was nothing there that other people and in their religions had to offer to worship. You know, like you, you would you don't see a lot of like other folks do. It does seem kind of like culture is culture. You worship certain things but not other things. There's no certain kind of animals, or there's no kind of this, there's no opera bowls being mentioned. Certain trees might even have certain reasons why certain things are mentioned. But that might be a little yeah, I think it's. I think I'd be careful about reading too much into that. I, I don't. I think that's basically an argument from silence, and it's hard to hard to make that exegetically. I think it's hard to know exactly what was <laughs> the culture like. Do you know what I mean? Aside from this, what the scriptures tell us, we're we have to do a lot of work to understand that time period. Yeah, Jeff. Sure. Yeah. Um, so two last points I want to make here real quick um, before we wrap up. The first is point number three. This, this commandment teaches us not only of God's jealousy, but also of his love. I think it's important for us when we see this. Um, certainly the Lord takes these things very seriously. He does visit the iniquity of, um, in this respect of violating this commandment upon uh, the, the children of the fathers. And there is, we have to wrestle with that means, with what that means. I think we also, though, should see that in the context that the Lord shows his steadfast love to thousands of generations, um, the, this passage tells us. And I think that's a very important contrast to draw. Um, Calvin puts it this way. He says, God commends to us the largeness of his mercy. The largeness of his mercy. I love that phrase. Which he extends to a thousand generations, while he has only assigned four generations to his vengeance. That's something for us to wrestle with. Sometimes we act as though God's wrath and God's love are somehow two equal and opposite 
aspects of himself. And I don't personally think that's at all how the scriptures speak of God. Certainly God is a God who judges, a God who um, brings judgment upon his people. But I do not think the scriptures depict that as somehow you know, a counterweight to his love in some absolute way. And we need to, I think the emphasis, scriptures always emphasize God's love and mercy and kindness. And this commandment does that as well. And then finally, I think that this commandment does teach us an important thing about Christianity, which is that it is a word-based religion. It's not about images. The Lord could have revealed himself to us in different ways, um, but he chose words. And I think that's important for us to think about how we engage spiritually. Are we, are we doing so um, primarily by receiving the word of God spoken to us, either in the scriptures or through preaching? Are we speaking words back to God in prayer? Um, those are, you know, this kind of divine conversation is the way the Lord dwells with us. Um, and I think that's some, something for us to wrestle with. Because it's easy, especially in our culture today, to replace, to, to see images and words as interchangeable. And I don't think... Um, the living God acts that way towards us. So uh, just something to wrestle with as you, as you think about these things. All right, let's pray. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for this commandment. We thank you for um, the way in which it requires us to wrestle with your word and to uh, really um, seek to understand and apply it. Father, we thank you that you grant us your spirit to do that. And I pray that you would help us each as we wrestle even with this second commandment. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.